is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, May 17, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Working from Bristol at ESPN uh, is Sarah Abbott, Taylor Schwenk, working from the Schwenk Studios, and I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Well, in the midst of the two-homer game that Aaron Judge had on Monday, this was the conversation on the Jays television network between my old friend Dan Schulman, who I worked with on Sunday Night Baseball, and Buck Martinez. Give a listen. A long hold here by Jackson. And it's two and two. All right, Buck. So you and I looked at each other at the same moment right when we saw this three pitches ago. Watch what he's looking at. What is that? Where's he looking? Where's he looking? And he did it more than once. Yeah, Yeah. it's really, really unusual. But you and I both looked at each other when we saw that. Like, Like, did you see what I saw? And you don't want to go, you know, throwing allegations around without knowing, but no. And and you know what? Yeah, I I have had guys look back when I was catching, and, and you obviously could see it, and he. He couldn't see the catcher with the way he was looking right there. Yeah, just did it again. And he pummeled it. He hit it a country mile for his second home run of the night. Third time this season, and Aaron Judge hit two homers in a game. And once again, he's looking at something. And then the next move is that powerful swing, and he blasts one to center field. I've not seen that before with him. No. I've not ever seen that. And we've both seen it a lot. Do you think he's trying to see if he can see Kirk, if Kirk's away? Yeah. You know, it's more likely to be a slider if Kirk's in and he can't see him. It's more likely to be a fastball. But the way his head was, I don't know that he could see the catcher just looking like that. Yeah. So a lot of conversation after that game, after Aaron Judge's two home run game, after he pummeled that slider. Uh, about what he was looking at. Aaron Judge was asked by reporters after the game about that glance that he did repeatedly in the direction of the Yankees dugout. A lot of chirping from our our dugout, which I really didn't like in the situation where it's a 6 nothing game and I know Booney got tossed. Like, I was trying to save Booney by calling timeout. Like, hey, hold up here. Like, let me, let me work here. I said a couple things to some guys in the dugout, and especially after the game, but... Um, Hopefully it won't happen again. Yeah, and so I can tell you this. The the folks in the Blue Jays organization didn't believe that explanation. They felt that uh, the judge was looking at something, and maybe it was somebody conveying, uh, you know, a pitch location or something like that. And uh, what I got from the Blue Jays organization was that it was a feeling of, you know what, we need to do a better job on our end. I don't think anybody was saying that Aaron Judge cheated because – you know, sign stealing is something that uh, has gone on for through, throughout baseball history, and the Blue Jays really felt like, you know what, we we kind of created this situation, and we need to fix to make it better. They did reach out to Major League Baseball because they had some question about whether or not the pitchers and catchers were giving away pitches, uh, and so going into the game, uh, there's a lot of questions answered by Aaron Boone and others about what happened. And there was some chirping going on between the two sides. Coaches yelling at each other during the game. Josh Schneider, the manager of the Blue Jays, called one of the Yankee coaches a fat boy. Well, in the midst of all that, Domingo Herman got kicked out of the game. 
Well, they have just thrown Domingo Herman out of the game. They checked his hand, all four umpires, now talking with Aaron Boone. And Herman, who's been perfect through three, was just thrown out of the game for obviously something on his hand that they did not think was, uh, was allowable. When he was coming out of the dugout, he was stopped by an umpire to check going into the game. Usually it's going out of the game. And they checked. All four umpires came and checked. And they ended up throwing him out. That was Michael Kay on the Yes Network. Domingo Herman ejected by the same umpiring crew that checked him a few weeks ago. And presumably he's going to wind up getting a 10-game suspension. It was 3-all. Top of the eighth inning. Aaron Judge came to the plate with a runner on base. High fly ball. Center field. The Yankees would win 6-3. to three. A lot of talk after this game, of course, with so many things going on. Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager, was asked about Herman's ejection. With Herman, what was said by the umpires there? Clearly he had something on his hands. Just, yeah, they felt it was too sticky, um, and and they, they ran him. How does that happen with him, considering he had that incident a, a few weeks back where he was warned and it almost happened a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's not 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 okay and not, but you know we're also talking about a very what is the what is the line? So it's difficult, but obviously it raised to a level that, and and of course, you know he's been in the crosshairs a little bit, but it raised to a level that they didn't feel was good, and and ultimately, you know. That you know, that's that's Domingo's responsibility to make sure we're we're in a better position there. Yeah, Domingo Herman was like the guy a few weeks ago got stopped by cops for going seventy miles per hour, uh, and they let him off with a warning, and then he flew by the umpires going hundred miles per hour. Here's Aaron Judge after the game with Meredith Morakovitz. Aaron, this team had overcome a lot of adversity this evening, came through with the win, second straight against the Blue Jays. What do you think has clicked for this team over the last two days? His overall great approaches at the plate. You know, um, Gosman's had our number. You know, ever since he's been with Toronto, he's kind of had our number and couldn't really figure him out. And then you know, we were able to get a couple get a couple runs early, and then you know, we were able to get two more late, three more late uh, against their bullpen. So I think it's just guys having great approaches up there and not missing their pitch. Domingo Herman gets ejected there in that fourth inning. How much credit do you give to the bullpen getting 18 outs this evening? Oh, it's big time. You know, Ian coming in, you know, he's been a, a workhorse for us, you know, I feel like all season. You know, him and Ron coming in there and then Webby giving us some some huge innings. Uh, and then when you give it to the back end of the bullpen with Clay and Wandy, man, it's uh, tough to get guys on base and tough to get runs when you got those guys in the pen. You've had to answer a lot of questions over the last 24 hours. When you connect in the eighth inning to put your team ahead, is that swing a little sweeter for you? Anytime you give your team the lead, uh, you know, it, it's sweet. You know, I'm just trying to do my job there. You know, I kind of missed a couple pitches earlier in the game. You know, it's a couple of heaters away from Gosman, and, you know, I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss my pitch, you know, in that situation where we needed some runs. I saw you go back in the dugout then. You were looking at the iPad with Anthony Rizzo and Garrett Cole. Were you admiring your work? It seemed like you uh, dented that sign or broke that sign out there in dead center. Uh, I don't know what we were looking at, to be honest. It might have been the next guy coming in. I'm not, I'm not even too sure at this moment. <laughs> Taylor, Aaron Judge giving some very politically correct answers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of, as I watched him round the bases after hitting that home run, 
I wondered if he was going to make some sort of gesture, like glancing off to the side as he passed the Blue Jays dugout. What do you think? I feel like he should be doing that all season now. Like any, that should be his calling card. Whenever he's he's upset at the other team, he just gives him a little side eye. That should be his signature. There you go. Uh, during the course of the game, John Snyder, as I mentioned, was yelling at Luis Rojas, the Yankees coach, for not staying at third base box. All that back and forth between the two dugouts. He talked about that. What happened, you know, Pete was probably, you know, more playfully than anything saying, I'm watching you. And um, probably all heard that, but uh, Rojas kind of took exception to it. Um, You know, it's two competitive teams. It's, uh, you know, you're not pleased with the way everything is shaking out the last 24 hours, right? And I think it's just people being competitive. And, um, you know, Rojas responded how he did, and we responded how we did. And we'll be talking about all this with June Lee coming up. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals on the hottest tickets. Experience it live. And the Padres are experiencing a lot of ugliness these days. They were at home against the Kansas City Royals, and they were behind early. The 1-0. Perez drives it into the left center field. Gap Soto can't get there. It splits the gap. Goes all the way to the wall. Eaton's in to score easily. Went rounds third. He crosses the plate standing. Salvador Perez is at second base with a two-run double. And it's 5-0 KC in the top of the second. Booing in San Diego. Because the Royals would go on to win 5-4. That sound from 6-10 KCSP, the Padres have lost eight of their last 10 games. The other team that went all in during the course of the offseason, the New York Mets, were playing host to the Tampa Bay Rays yesterday. The Rays hitters wore on Justin Verlander in a three-run third inning. Paredes hitting a home run. He came to the plate again in the fifth. And the one delivery is lifted way up to the air down the left field line to the corner. Gone of its fair to the pole. And fair ball. Home run for Isak Paredes. He's got a second of the night, and the Rays now lead 6-0. At from 620 WDAE, the Rays win 8-5, and Justin Verlander, who got booed as he walked off the mound, uh, was asked about his day. How'd you feel about your day? Um, not a lot of positives to take out of it. Um, you know, uh, I guess the only positive is that I know I got some work to do. Um, you know, I already started looking at some video, trying to find. Um, you know, I think I think there's a little something off of my mechanics. I need to I need to fix it, and I need to fix it in a hurry. Um, so, <clears throat> it's been plenty of times in my career where you know you find yourself a little a little off, and um, there's no panic button, especially you know my third start of the season. Um, but uh, sometimes it takes games like this to really kind of you know kick you and um, you know make you study everything that you possibly can to, to find out what's a little off. Um, but, um, yeah, overall today, not great. We got word this morning the Mets are promoting slugger Mark Vientos from the minors. We'll talk about why they needed to do this, but why there should be some concern as they make this move. The Rangers played host to the Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night. It was one all, fourth inning, Adolis Garcia at the plate. Hits this ball hard out to right field. Acuna will not even play it. That's gone. A two-run homer by El Bombi. Three to one Rangers. Texas would win seven to four. They did get bad news about Kumar Rocker, the right-handed pitching prospect. He's going to need Tommy John surgery. 
and will be out for at least a year. The ones who get it done is brought to you by Granger. With supplies and solutions for every industry, Granger has the right product for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. The guy's been getting it done for the Cardinals lately. Third baseman Nolan Arenado. He did it again in the bottom of the second last night in St. Louis. Nolan hit a three-run homer in the first inning of the game yesterday. He leads off the second and hits it deep to left field. That is going to go for a home run. Five consecutive games. Arenado has hit a home run. Three of those in the first, in the first or two in the first. This comes in the second inning as Arenado lifted one out toward Big Macland. My goodness, is he on fire. John Rooney on the Cardinals radio network. It was two all top of the sixth inning. Brian Anderson at the plate for Milwaukee. Anderson 0 for 1. He was hit by a pitch back in the fourth. And the first pitch to him. High fly ball center field. Newt Bar retreating onto the warning track at the wall. And it is gone. Brian Anderson gives the Brewers a 3-2 lead here in the top of the sixth. And that would be the final score. Luis Robert of the White Sox also has homered in four straight games. They beat the Guardians yesterday. The Marlins and the Nationals and Jorge Soler. Boy, (laughs) he has a flair for the dramatic. Three and two, the count to Soler. Here's the pitch. We're going to drive. Hit deep. Left field. Way back. We're going home for the first time in his career. Jorge Soler. It's a walk-off homer. And the Marlins beat the Nationals by a final score of 5-4. to four. And from 940 WINZ, Marlins win 5-4. to four. Orioles and Angels. Orioles continue to play well. Here's the pitch. That's in the air to center field and deep. Trout races back. Running out of room. And that baby's gone. Way out to center field. A two-run shot for Ryan Mountcastle. That from WBAL. So the game of musical chairs in the American League Beast continues. One of these five teams is not going to make the playoffs. Late last night, the Athletics playing in the Coliseum against the Diamondbacks. They were down four runs, and then this happened. Swing and a high fly ball, deep left center field. Fletcher is back. He's at the wall. It's a grand slam for Ryan Noda. It's the A's first of 2023, and he has tied the game at eight. Then this happened in the 12th. The set and the pitch. Swung on line towards short, off the glove of Ahmed, stays on the infield. Laureano is home, and the A's have won at 9-8. Esther Ruiz pounding the chest, and the party behind the mound as the A's get their fourth walk-off of the year. And that's 10 wins. For Oakland, Taylor. What do you think? Double digits, baby. The climb. Double digits. It happened. It happened. Maybe maybe they'll get to 20. Who knows? Questionable at the moment, but we'll see. Things to promote here, Buster. Uh, We've got Hoop Collective, Low Post, new episodes after every game of the Western Conference Finals and the Eastern Conference Finals in the NBA. Uh, They're churning out some quality stuff, and I've heard some rumblings of some fun plans for the NBA Finals as well. So check out the Low Post, the Hoop Collective, wherever you're listening to this podcast and on YouTube. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe 
and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. June Lee covers baseball for ESPN, and that meant June last night being at City Field, where I'd say the folks were a little unhappy about what's going on so far this year. What do you think? Yeah, I, it was interesting after the game. Justin Verlander got booed off the mound. He let up uh, a bunch of runs yesterday on two homers from Isaac Paredes of the Tampa Bay Rays. And it was interesting just because the vibe of the clubhouse is just drastically different than what it was at this point last year with the Mets, because I would say last year with the Mets, it was kind of positive all around from kind of beginning to end. There wasn't this like period where the team or the fan base kind of freaked out to the degree they think that they are now. And, you know, when you have a guy like Justin Verlander, who's the prize free agent, who's getting booed in a city field debut, uh, he, he mentioned after the game that, you know, I don't think he, he did not. He did not expect the Mets to be three games under 500 in fourth place on May 17th. Uh, and I think it kind of states kind of is it, kind of to reveal some of the cracks of uh, the way that the Mets have uh, built this roster. Um, and it's going to be really interesting whether or not this this team is going to be able to. Uh, turn things around in terms of just the vibes in the clubhouse, because this was not something that they really ever went through at any point last season. What's interesting about Verlander last night, and I've, I've watched a lot of his game in the you know pivotal third inning, which I felt like was like the, if you think of it like a boxing match, that was the round where the Rays hitters threw body punch after body punch after body punch. He's incredible at bats. They were stressing Verlander tremendously. He didn't have a great slider last night. I actually didn't think he was as bad as his line indicated. I thought the Rays were really good. But for Justin last night, that was the first sign of, you know what, you were, you know, from the fans' perspective, you were called in to be a savior and you were not. And you will pay the price now because we're starting to panic a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, I think on top of that, too, it's the fact that a lot of the other rotation guys just aren't performing. Like you look at right. like David Peterson, who got sent down yesterday and Buck Showalter was, you know, basically like it's good that David Peterson, I've seen him be good before because he was so bad this year. It was kind of the subtext of it. And he basically was like, we're still depend. We're still hoping to depend on him heading into the playoffs. But if he doesn't, we're going to have to look towards someone else. Obviously, Max Scherzer uh, hasn't necessarily been as sharp as as uh, the Mets would have wanted starting off this season as well, on top of having the 10-game suspension. And they've had a ton of injuries as well. They're you know, looking to get Carlos Carrasco back this Friday, uh, and Jose Quintana is is still kind of on the track to rehab. Uh, there's, there's some talks about uh, a CT scan that's upcoming that's going to be a really big deal in terms of determining when he's going to come back. But the Mets rotation has just not been there for... Uh, for most of the season so far, uh, you know, the, the plan was Scherzer, Verlander, uh, you know, Carrasco, uh, Quintana, and, and hoping that, uh, that, that those guys would be able to hold it together. And those guys just haven't 
been on the field as much as the Mets would would have liked so far this season. So I think when you combine all those things uh, and, and just the fact that some of the guys on the offensive end uh, have been struggling, kind of depending on the night, like it's been a lot of the pitching does well, the offense doesn't hit. And then the when on the nights when the offense does hit, the pitching doesn't do well. And so the timing hasn't really aligned for, for the Mets so far this season. I think that the injuries to the rotation have also kind of exacerbated uh, the the worries and the anxieties that, 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 that people have about this team. So I was on radio on ESPN New York this morning and Rick DiPietro asked me, and it was Billy Epler, their general manager, is he good at his job? And I said, yeah, I think he is. Like, I think the plan that they had was sound uh, where their feeling is, look, they don't have pitch, young pitching in the organization. And so they wanted to sort of fill in these this gap of time while they developed uh, young pitching in their farm system. They wanted to fill in this gap of time with uh, experienced and really good starters. So they spend big money on Max Scherzer, which you have to do if you're going to, you know, outbid other teams. You spend on Justin Verlander. You go after Carlos Carrasco. Um, so I think the plan was absolutely sound, but the bottom line is it's just not playing out. You know, you've had injuries, which is the risk you take on when you have an older rotation like this. Given the structure of the team, like if they're going to make the playoffs, that's what has to happen. They don't have a dynamic offense. They have a you know an offense when it's at its best. It's a good offense. They need the rotation to be dominant or at least really good. And I agree with you. That's the root problem. Like they, if the Mets are going to rebound for, rebound from this slow start, it's got to happen with the rotation. Yeah, and I was talking to someone who works in Mets baseball ops yesterday before the game, and they were basically talking about how uh, you know you look at what was out there this offseason. The Mets kind of did as best as they could to improve the rotation by going out and getting literally the reigning Cy Young Award winner. And I think that there is a risk proposition in terms of how the Mets approached building this rotation this offseason and depending on two, you know, aging, still very, very good pitchers, but aging pitchers to be at the top of that rotation. I was talking to someone yesterday in the Mets as well, where, you know, it's kind of easy to understate the value of having someone like Chris Bassett last year where, you know, he's not going to set the world on fire, right? He's not going to make a ton of all-star games or, you know, be one of the 15, 20 best pitchers in baseball, but almost on a every five day basis, he was healthy the entire season last year for the most part. Um, you know, he went out there every five days and put out like a three, four, three, five, three, six ERA. Like he was an above average starter on a, on a week to week basis. And that's something that they're kind of missing right now is just, having that dependability because there's been so much volatility with the injuries in this rotation so far and uh, not having that just like baseline consistency, uh, which I think they're hoping to get out of a guy like Quintana uh, heading into heading into the season, Carlos Carrasco, um, not having that in the rotation, I think just adds kind of a, an increased level of volatility when you're also depending on uh, older starting pitchers to number one, stay healthy, but also not age in a way that is, you know, completely detrimental to the foundation of the team. Yeah, and I don't think we can. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that what's that's what Bassett's uh, you know value was last year when they signed Senga, who as you know is not as old as the older other guys. But talking with folks with other teams, I'm like, hey, what do you think of the signing? And they're like, you know what, if he's if he's uh, healthy, he's okay. But they saw real injury risk with him, um, and he's going through you know transition into pitching in Major League Baseball, and and maybe that's going to work out. Maybe it's not. It won't. Uh, Carlos Carrasco, I think you'd agree with me as he comes back, the Mets are hopeful, but when you got to have, have a guy who, <laughs> you know, his path getting back to big leagues, okay, let's get an injection in his elbow. 
and let's hope that works out. <laughs> you know, he's in his mid-30s. It's going to be a challenge for them. And I would say, you know, this news that we got this morning that they're promoting Mark Vientos, uh, I, I just shook my head. Uh, a, I agree with the promotion. I think they have to try to do something to help the offense. But I feel bad for the kid. Like, come to the big leagues. The team is slumping. He's looked at as a savior. And June, you know, just if you look at his profile as a hitter, ton of power in AAA this year, 24 extra bases in 38 games, but also 34 strikeouts. He had 122 strikeouts in 101 games last year in AAA. Like, this is not, you know, Bryce Harper being called to the big leagues. And, And so it does feel like from the front office perspective, a little bit of a panic move. In terms of, oh, my God, we have to figure out a way to jumpstart this offense. And I think it's the right move, but I think they better be preparing a plan C pretty quickly. Yeah, I I do think that there's a level of reaction to this because, uh, you know, you look at the Mets lineup yesterday, you know, someone like Tommy Pham, he was expected to be a fourth outfielder, kind of a guy who comes in and and provides a spark and he's hitting fourth in that lineup. And I think Tommy's numbers, uh, when you look at kind of the sabermetrics and the advanced stats uh, are, are better than what kind of the results on the field have actually been. But when the Mets are depending on Tommy Fan on May 17th to be the cleanup hitter, which is, I don't think, you know, knowing Tommy decently well, I don't think that he even expected to have to be the cleanup hitter for the Mets uh, this early in the season or even at all this year. Um, there's a sense of just like, what are we going to do right now? And, you know, you mentioned the strikeout numbers for Vantos and, uh, you know, the, the gap between AAA pitching and major league pitching. Yes. Is so enormous, right? Because the best guy in AAA versus the best guy in the major leagues. You're, you know, there's Hall of Fame guys in the major leagues and the best AAA guys are guys who can't crack a major league roster. It's such an enormous difference. And so, you know, there's all these guys who obviously have the raw power, but when you face better stuff, like the strikeout numbers are getting exacerbated. Like I look at someone like, you know, Bobby Dahlbeck for the Red Sox, who was an enormous power hitter in the minor leagues, had shown flashes of that in the big leagues as well, but the strikeouts eventually got to him. And that's kind of why he's been in stuck between levels. And, you know, Vientos has been up before, like this is not his first go around in the major leagues. Um, that's something that I'm incredibly concerned about for the Mets, where in the middle of May, uh, you're depending on a guy who hasn't necessarily been able to make enough an impression to, to stick on the major league roster, to be the guy who suddenly comes in and, and is the spark plug for the team. You know, and there are high strikeout guys in the minor leagues who can come to the big leagues and succeed. Aaron Judge was one of those, uh, but there's also the high walk total. Vientos last year, 44 walks, 122 strikeouts. Like those are that those numbers do not fit the profile of someone who's going to come in right away and you know potentially be the savior. You hope for him that uh, you know it goes well early. And let's be clear about this. You know, there are a lot of folks who are talking about uh, Daniel Vogelbach and they need more offense. Daniel Vogelbach, as of today, because he draws walks, his adjusted OPS is 109, you know, with 100 being the, the midline, of course, for offensive performance. Francisco Alvarez, 83. Jeff McNeil, 103. Francisco Lindor, 100. Brett Beatty, 102. Mark Canna, 87. Tommy Pham, the aforementioned Tommy Pham, 75. Starling Marte, 64. So, uh, yes, they would love to get something out of Vientos, but they need other guys to step up as well. Um, All right, let's talk about what happened in Toronto last night, which was a lot of fun. I know you're doing the Mets game, and so maybe you weren't locked into it, you know, pitch to pitch. But, uh, you know, just (laughs) everything starting with Monday, with Aaron Judge, uh, you know, glancing at the dugout repeatedly, from pitch to pitch, 
uh, and then coming out after the game and saying, well, there's chirping in my dugout. Uh, are you <laughs> taking that at face value? His answer at face value. So I actually had a buddy text me about this where he's just like, do you believe Aaron Judge? And the question was almost like, are you, do you think Aaron Judge is capable of like not saying the complete truth to the media? I'm like, yeah, last year during the home run chase, he said he didn't, he wasn't thinking about any of the pressure that came with (laughs) trying to break Roger Maris's record. And if you just like sense the vibe around the clubhouse, everyone was more tight, including him. Like I wrote in my story back then that like he was staring at a life magazine cover featuring Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. Like there's no way if you're a, human being that you can't not think about that and so yeah i think aaron judge is capable of like putting up a front to the media and you know kind of shielding what's actually going on because you know the, the the idea that uh that a hitter as good as him who's been in a lot of pressure pack situations is suddenly distracted by you know his teammates chirping in the dugout which is something that happens a lot throughout the course of a baseball game uh it felt like a little bit of a stretch and then you know there's a report that came on oh, the by athletic. the way oh by the way Oh, by the way, uh, and it, he's glancing at the dugout at the exact moment the pitcher's coming set. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a coincidence. But anyway, I interrupted you. So there's a report. Right. There was a report in The Athletic today that the, you know, the pitcher admitted that he was he was tipping his pitches. And so uh, it's one of those things where um, I, I think that there's a line here because I think that there's a lot of fans right now, especially post Astros, who are so sensitive to, you know, pitch, you know, the, the stealing of signs and all this stuff. And you know, I, I think that one of the reasons why I, I think that one of the things that often, um, you know, people who don't consume baseball on a day-to-day basis or around kind of the, the clubhouse on a day-to-day basis, you know, don't realize why people were so mad about the Astros is not that because signs were being stolen. That happens so frequently throughout the course of a baseball season. It's that the Astros use additional technology to try to get an advantage to steal right. those signs. Technology is a separator. Technology, Technology right, like stealing signs in theory is cheating, but it's, it's kind of a part of the games in the gamesmanship of baseball. And so, you know, you know, someone like Alex Cora, you know, my reference point is often Boston is really, really good at, at picking up when pitchers are tipping their pitches. That's the kind of thing Eduardo that Perez, our colleague at ESPN is excellent at it. Hundred percent. It's one of those things that like people develop literally skills to be better at. Um, if you're a fringe guy on the roster, being able to do that can maybe help you stay on the roster a little bit longer. It's something that is such a part of the game. And so there was a defensiveness I saw yesterday from you know Yankees fans, especially on on the internet, where they're like, you know, the accusation that the Yankees were cheating. It's like, well, in theory, you know, stealing signs is cheating, but it's also just kind of a part of the game that I think every other team accepts as part of the game. It's just a matter of like the gamesmanship and how you, how obviously you, you try to steal, you know, the, the signs of another team by positioning the first base coach in a certain way. And, you know, Aaron judge glancing back to the dugout a bunch of times, which is not something you normally see Aaron judge do. Um, I think that there's levels to this. And I think the, oh, the overarching thing in all of this is that there is a brewing rivalry between the Blue Jays and the Yankees right now that has been developing over the course of the last couple of years between Alec Manoa and the Garrett Cole, uh, you know, stuff that he's talked about in the podcast, you know, Alec Manoa calling Garrett Cole one of the biggest cheaters in the game. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of just kind of underlying tension that has been developing over the course of the last couple of years. I think is really starting to come to a head now uh, because both of these teams are in spots to compete for a championship this year. And so there's real stakes at hand. Uh, I don't think of it as cheating. And you know what? I don't think the Toronto Blue Jays think of it as cheating. I talked to people in that organization yesterday and they're like, yeah, you know what? Uh, he was probably glancing over the dugout and getting some indication of what the pitch was going to be. And we need to do better. 
like the the Blue Jays, that was their internal feeling. And apparently it wasn't like they were like, poor Jay Jackson, you were so aggrieved because they sent him to the minor leagues because he had made some bad pitches. Like, so, you know, internally the Blue Jays processed it. Uh, what happened, I think, the other day, uh, and, and we're like, we have to figure out a way to do a better job with this. But at the same time, uh, what happened yesterday morning and then into the game last night reminded me of when I you know, covered David Cohn as a player. And Coney said that he would go into a, a media guide and he would read a profile of, you know, of uh, the, the opposing players and find reasons to hate them. Right. And he would to, to be <laughs> that's angry. That's the most David Cohn thing I've ever heard, by the way. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of what I think was going on yesterday. It's like the Jays were there. You know what? We're going to reach out to Major League Baseball and complain about the coaches while, uh, you know, quietly they're probably going, it, we know it's not a big deal. But we're going to do this to stoke the, uh, you know, stoke the, the the competitiveness between the two teams. And during the game last night, the coaches yelling at each other and John Snyder, the Blue Jays manager, yelling at someone in the Yankees dugout, hey, fat boy, shut up. <laughs> I mean, I I think that was all about the, the rivalry that you referenced as opposed to Blue Jays really believing the Yankees did anything wrong. Yeah, and I think that that's ultimately good for the game, I think. Like, yes, I thought it was so much fun. This is This is like fun to talk about. I feel like... That's one of the things that I, like, as someone who's like a diehard NBA fan as well, like that's one of the things that baseball is often missing in terms of the the cultural conversations, like the stuff that you know people can talk about on first uh, first take or Sports Center is having these like dramatic moments. It's not necessarily a bad thing for baseball. It like creates conversation. It draws casual fan interest in. Like it's one of the things I was talking to someone uh, who works for the league recently. Like it's something that I wish the players would sometimes lean a little bit further into because. You know, having the drama, the soap opera of all of this, like at the end of the day, this is all kind of reality television <laughs> in terms of the entertainment value that it provides to us as fans. And so, um, I don't know this is the type of stuff that I love to see in baseball, because uh, as you know, as well as anyone, baseball players can be so petty and having that pettiness actually come to the forefront uh, and create drama is not the worst thing in the world for, for the sport. Oh, it was awesome last night. You get Aaron Boone yelling at the umpires. The coach, their coach is out of the third base box. Get in the box. Get in the box. It was it was classic. All right, before you go, I uh, wanted to spend a, a couple minutes uh, real quick on your story on Kenley Jansen, which ran last Friday about the therapy he's gotten. I cursed him. I cursed him. He's, uh, he's had his two worst performances of the season since that story. <laughs> I can promise you he doesn't blame you, and I can tell you that because – on on Sunday, as I was getting ready for the game, I was at the game on Saturday when he completely lost his equilibrium when Wilson Contreras was, uh, speaking of gamesmanship, was stepping out of the box with his front foot and staring at him. And Kenley uh, couldn't figure it out on the fly on Saturday. But I bumped into Kenley on Sunday and I mentioned to him, I said, hey, that article that June did was great. And thank you for you know coming out and, and speaking out loud about it. And he looked at me and he said, yep. He said, I've told so many people this. I have no problem talking about it. And he said, you know what? That whole thing that happened yesterday, he said, if that had happened to me five years ago where he blows up a game and, you know, blows a save, he said, I would have been a complete mess. He goes, I'm fine. Like, I need to make my adjustments, but I'm okay emotionally. Uh, Tell me about your conversation with Kenley. Yeah. So it's funny enough, like this conversation actually happened opening weekend of the season. So this is before he had even pitched in a regular season game. And he basically uh, told me in that moment, like, I kind of guarantee that 
I'm about to have like one of the best starts to the seasons of my career. And like, you look at the numbers, like he's made, he's made physical adjustments too, in terms of changing his workout routine and working out more like an NBA player. When you look at the peripherals, like the movement on his cutter is as high as it's been since even, even higher than what is in his prime. And he's changed the way that he's pitched on the mound on top of that, where he's relying much more on the cutter and, and cut back on the slider. But he basically talked to me about how over the course of the last couple of years, he's really revamped the way that he approaches the mental part of the game on the mound, especially as a closer. It's such an enormous part of whether or not someone's successful. And he talked about how when he was in LA, especially when he's starting to struggle kind of in the years before, you know, 2020, 2018, 2019, he was starting to read a lot more comments on social media, whether it was on Twitter, on Instagram. And it got to the point where his wife Gianni would go on his Instagram and just delete a bunch of comments. So Kenley wouldn't see them, especially when he had a bad game. And, you know, it was kind of to the point where he'd spent his entire early part of his, of his career building up his self-esteem through getting that validation through the media and through comments on social media and being like, Oh, I really am one of the best relievers in baseball because people on social media are saying, and when those comments start to flip uh, the place that he went for building his self-esteem was now the source of kind of vocalizing all of his deepest insecurities about whether or not he was actually good enough to, to be one of the best relievers and closers in baseball. And so, you know, after 2020, when Julio Arias ends up closing out the world series because Kenley kind of fell apart in that playoff run, um, his wife pushed him to go to therapy and they found a therapist. And um, as, as, as I wrote in that story, his therapist basically said, like, you're acting like a you have a mindset right now and was using kind of language that is probably unusual to hear from a therapist, but I think they were speaking in kind of the language that is often common in a baseball clubhouse. Um, and that was kind of a wake up call for him. And he, he, he worked on uh, just building up his self-esteem again from internally. And, and uh, you know, to hear an athlete talk about that, we've seen kind of more athletes speak up about this. I, I think that, you know, especially with the media, like players often um, kind of disregard or try to, have a shield around that kind of aspect. And so to have an athlete, especially someone who's potentially on a, a path to the hall of fame that Kenley is um, speak up about this and, and how he talked about his struggles. Um, it's something that I think is going to hopefully have a, a, a good effect on not just people within baseball, but also fans of Kenley who you know see someone who has been extremely successful in his career, but has also had to deal with his share of, uh, you know, having to deal with his inner demons. All right, June. Well, nice job with that story. And uh, thanks for uh, talking to me today and have fun out at the ballpark today. There's going to be something great that's going to be happening. Yeah. Thanks, Buster. Thanks again for having me on. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. 
When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Derek Gold covers baseball and the St. Louis Cardinals for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And, and so, Derek, I'll, I'll, you know, given that context, I'll just ask you an easy question. Who's the Cardinals' everyday catcher? Great question. Uh, as of <laughs> the other day, we asked that question, and uh, it was Wilson Contreras is going to be the everyday catcher. And then the next day, Andrew Kisner started at catcher. So uh, I will say that the most days catcher for the Cardinals will be Wilson Contreras. That's where they're going. Um, And that's what you'll see in the coming week, the most days catcher. Um, But they have seen Andrew Kisner take strides offensively. They obviously Kisner has the relationship and the history with the pitchers and the the trust behind the plate. And he's improved some behind the plate. So they'll, they'll mix and match. I don't, this is not going to be a case where, you know, for the last, what, 18 years you've been used to the everyday catcher being a thousand inning, and constant catcher, that's not going to be the case. It's going to be more of a, more of a timeshare that you see with other teams. Though by the end of the season, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Contreras will have started the most games at catcher. Really? Okay. So I would tell you this. You know, I went on radio in St. Louis, and anybody who in the organization tries to sell the idea that there was a master plan that played out over the last 10 days, I'm like, no. I mean, there's just no consistent strands of thought that went into this. But I did say, and I said this on the podcast last week, too, I admire the fact that they saw a problem in terms of how the team was playing and were willing to try anything, including essentially demoting, uh, you know, this huge investment from the offseason, five years and eighty seven half million. That takes guts Mm -hmm. because, you you know, once you do that, you know, it's going to be awkward. Uh, You know, it's going to be uncomfortable for people. So I respect that. But I would say this, as we sit here today and you put Wilson Contreras in the DH spot and Kisner, who clearly, you know, far better than I do. He clearly has a great relationship with the pitchers. I was watching him in the clubhouse the other day and the way players are responding to him. I feel like he's a a part of the fabric of this team. Uh, If I'm the Cardinals right now, and I'm seeing my team win with Contreras at DH and Kisner behind the plate. I'm sorry, winning as they, they demonstrated by doing this decision in the first place is paramount in 2023. I'm sticking with that until it doesn't work. 
Yeah, and I, I think there is a happy medium there that still keeps them winning. I mean, he, you know, Contreras did catch the game where they won 18 to 1, and Jack Flaherty pitched like we hadn't seen Jack Flaherty, Flaherty pitch in several years. So, um, and Wilson was a part of that, according to Wilson and Jack. And I mean, we could watch it. We could watch the confidence in which Jack was pitching and some of the calls that, uh, that Wilson was making behind the plate to kind of push him through that, especially after what was a four-pitch walk to open the game, two walks in the first inning, needed a double play to get out of a jam against the Brewers, and then just roared from there. So I, I, think, there is, um, I think there is a way to, to make both work, to, to win, to have Contreras improve, and to embrace Contreras. And I think what we saw, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because you're right about Kisner's place in the clubhouse, you know, from the invention of the pepper grinder to the little needling that he gives his teammates to, um, you know, just, just making some of the guys crack up, but also to his commitment to preparation, to scouting, what he does even on days or for weeks when he was Molina's backup, where he never played, but he was always ready to leap in with knowledge of how that pitcher, that reliever, that starter was going to attack that next day's lineup. And I think, you, you know, you mentioned that there's no grandmaster. You're right. I mean, some of the way this was rolled out, this was handled. Um, it, it was clear that they were trying to do it. It's been clear for multiple weeks that they've tried some very uncharacteristic things for the Cardinals, especially for like the conservative group that they are, just to jar themselves from that losing streak. If there's someone who does deserve credit for piloting through this, it's Wilson. It's Wilson. Yes, that you led right perfectly to my next question. Yeah. The way he's been Wilson, amazing. He's been amazing. The way he handled this, such a pro. The way he was direct in saying, "Okay, I understand what you all want to do. I accept it. If it takes some more time at DH, then that's good." Then he told us that day, that day that they spoke to him, he told us, "If that, I'm going to spend the other part of the inning." by the pitching coach, by the pitchers, by the manager. I'm going to watch. I'm going to listen. That's that's what I'm going to take from this DH. If they're going to DH me, I'm going to make the most of what I can be as a catcher by watching what they're talking about, what they're doing, what they're thinking, and get to know the pitchers but that way. Then there's also how he kind of approached Wainwright and Flaherty during the meeting that they had that Oliver Marmol put together. And, you know, he's, he called it, you know, an icebreaker is what he called it the other night. But really, like, what it was was a chance to just say, like, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you, whatever you need. He was so true to his word about being whatever the team needed that day to win that he, he didn't gripe, he didn't complain about being removed from his position. Instead, he said, what do I have to do to get it back? And I think his commitment to get back to catcher is what guided the Cardinals back on this path and even accelerated him getting back to catcher. He, he deserves a lot of credit for how he approached it both publicly and privately. I, I thinking about this, uh, you know, especially with a free agent acquisition, uh, you know, at that level, I'm guessing 95% of players in a similar situation would have reacted really badly. Like it would have been ugly. And I'll throw this out of you. If, you know, I mean, Yanni Molina is a legend in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, and to the degree that a lot of his shortcomings in 2023 were sort of masked over. Uh, because the perception of him, can you imagine if, if, uh, you know, the Cardinals went to Yachty in 2017 and said, Hey, uh, we got this young catching prospect and we're going to play him more and, and you're going to be benched for a while. You know, and I know what his reaction would have been. <laughs> I, I got to see his reaction. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the timing. They're probably right about the right time, but they had Carson Kelly and they wanted That's right. Carson Kelly to play more. 
and they wanted Carson Kelly to be more involved, and that was not happening. Um, you know, that it just wasn't. And you saw there for a while that Tony Cruz was the backup who had a great relationship with Yadier Molina. Didn't play all that much, but had a great kind of, I mean, they just, they were, they were friends as well as teammates. And that was a great setup, but for growing like a young prospect, I mean, we've watched the timeline take place where Carson Kelly was the heir apparent. Nope. Traded for Paul Goldschmidt. Andrew Kisner was the heir apparent. Nope. He didn't play all that much, didn't get the reps he needed, and now they, they go out and get, they get Wilson Contreras. Ivan Herrera is the next top prospect in the catching line, and we'll see what his development is like. But the Cardinals, you know, you, you're exactly right. When we saw that play out. Um, Yair Molina prided himself on playing a lot, and he wanted, he, he wanted to lead the league. He told us this. You know how players are, how rare it is that they kind of outline goals at the beginning of the year, um, or they say, well, I've written them down, or I've talked with my family. Or these, these, there's some numbers, but I want to win a World Series. You, you know that whole thing you hear at spring training about goals. Yair would say, I want to lead the league in innings. I don't want it to be close. And this is what he, I mean, you know, just he constantly did. Um, that was very important to him. And to the relation to that is that Wilson Contreras defines himself as a catcher. He loves that position. You know that when he was with the Cubs, he moved to that position. He had to learn that position um, and, and then learned it kind of arriving with a championship team there in Chicago. Um, but he, he, part of his identity as a player is being a catcher. And to see how he handled this to make sure that that was stressed, but also that he was aware that, okay, I got I to gotta work my way back to it. That's, that is one of the things that I'll remember. That whole week and his approach was something I'll remember for a long time from my career for how a player handled it so well. Yeah, Yachty's perspective was, yeah, I'll be really good and good teammate as long as I get what I want. Uh, and I think not, most players would be that way. Like, that's not like I'm not I don't, don't mean to dump on Yachty because I think most players would be that way. But you and I both feel that the way Wilson did, which is, you know what, I'm not going to get what I want, but I'm going to try to make the best of it. That's the outlier. And the way that's why what, how he handled it, because he could have buried the Cardinals. Could have buried Ollie as young manager. He could have buried the front office. He could have put teammates in a bad position. But, man, he absolutely bailed them out. And he could have uh, all done it at Wrigley Field because of the timing. Uh, right, exactly. I mean, that's, that's let's not be lost in this. That, that happened right on the eve of his return to Wrigley Field. He could have said, you know, anything. He could have said the magic words, I want to trade. And he could have said that in Chicago. That, that I can't even imagine. All right. Uh, what do we make of Jack Flaherty? You know, two starts ago, I was watching on television uh, when he pitched against the Cubs in Wrigley Field. His velocity was way down. Mm-hmm. You know, we all heard the exchange he had with you about his velocity. Uh, I I've watched that game and I was like, oh boy, you know what? Maybe it's at this point it's going to be he's going to be a ninety-one to ninety-three mile an hour pitcher who's going to have to rely more on his soft stuff. And then the other night he threw a lot harder. What uh, what do we make of Jack Flaherty? Because he obviously is the biggest X factor in the Cardinals season. Yeah, well. I mean, I, the, the way he pitched the other night, if he can continue that, that's the Jack Flaherty that the Cardinals need. Um, I'm not saying like 10 strikeouts every night, but seven innings every night. Um, doesn't have to be shut out. But the, the idea that he could go out there and get seven strike or seven innings, um, that he can get strikeouts, that he can operate at 94, 95, 96, then drop in a 75, 74 curveball, and then have a changeup that he's willing to throw to right-handed batters, which we saw him use to Willie Adamas with great effect, and then have that slider that is his 
best pitch. I mean, that's the pitch that hitters just cannot handle, but they can ignore it if that fastball is not there or if that fastball is not right. And I think what he did the other night was an assertive Jack Flaherty versus a searching Jack Flaherty. We've seen him in that start at Wrigley um, other times this year. We've seen him just really kind of looking for the command of the fastball to access all those other pitches, and it leads to inefficiency, walks, some damage. Um, but if he can be assertive with that fastball, which he got to with Contreras behind the plate the other night, um, then that – and they can roll with that. That's the guy that he put everything together that had been there in – innings and bits and pieces. Um, I think, you know, how he pitched in Seattle was really strong. I think the way he pitched in at Coors Field earlier this year was, you know, you kind of you could adjust for the degree of difficulty and it was a very strong outing. But that not that game against the Brewers was putting everything together. Now can he duplicate that? And that's the question. Can he can he well it'll be six days from now as opposed to five days, but can he duplicate that the next time out against the Dodgers? Then can he do it again? And if he gets on a roll, then you're exactly right. Then that's that's what kind of clicks in for the rotation and everything around it. And that, that's what the Cardinals need. The day that uh, we heard about this decision of moving Contreras out of the catcher spot, I tweeted out about, you know, the, the domino effect, the ripple effects from this, which are still in place, I think. Yeah. That gradually this great, you know, this group of uh, young position players that the Cardinals have developed that, you know, we've, we've been lauding them and they've been in a great spot. They gradually, the collective value, perceived value in the industry of those guys is dripping downward Mm. because some of them aren't playing that much. Some of them aren't getting as much opportunity. Uh, Performances have clearly suffered to some degree. And whether it's because of the inconsistent playing time or or whatever's going on, that's a concern. What are they going to do with these log jam of guys? And, 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 And I'll just say this too. I talked with an evaluator with another team. He said, you know what's also being borne out is that as time goes on, a lot of these guys are not that good defensively. Mm-hmm. And the industry is starting to see that a little bit. What are they going to do with that group? Yeah, I think that, that comment about the defense is really interesting because they haven't at times really gone with their best defense. And you know what uh, signature that is for the Cardinals, especially with one of the most pitch-to-contact rotations in the game. I mean, they just don't have a high strikeout rate. That's, that's who they are. They're a team that invites con- – they're a rotation, excuse me, that invites contact and they need a strong defense behind it. They, they want to pitch to the strength and pitch to the personality of their ballpark. Um, but they haven't, you know, especially there early on, like for the first several weeks, maybe the entirety of April – they didn't exactly have their best defensive outfield out there, whether it was because of Tyler O'Neill's injuries or because they were trying to get Jordan Walker, the top prospect, playing time in right field. Um, you know, Dylan Carlson was not playing a lot of center field. Um, now he's hurt. He's got an ankle uh, injury. But when they're at their best, he's in center field. And Newpar is in right field. And Tyler O'Neill is in left field. Um, but to get playing time for an Alec Burleson or a Brendan Donovan because Nolan Gorman is playing second base because Wilson Contreras is a DH, you're right. There, there's this trickle-down effect that kind of radiates out to the field where they're not putting their best gloves out there. They got the, the good hand teams for late innings, but they're not starting that way. And, you know, it, it is something that they're trying to – it seems like every time they try to streamline and uh, simplify their outfield selections – then they have something get thrown in that throws it all awry. You know, they, they took Jordan Walker and returned him to AAA to work on his swing, but also to give clarity for who was starting where and when in the outfield. 
And then this other day in the second game against the Brewers, they had their opening day starting shortstop and their opening day starting second baseman in the corner outfield spots. So they, they, they do have a very, they like their versatility on their roster, but versatility has kind of created this different spot every day for some of these guys. And they, they, they talk about getting cohesion. They just haven't been able to do it, Buster. And I'm, I'm not sure if some of it is that. Some of it is the league adjusting to guys. I think you're seeing that with Brendan Donovan. He was chasing a lot there in the first month. He started to put things together. Um, Lars Newpar was out for a stretch, so you never got to see him kind of at full speed there during their losing streak. Now he's going, and he's the on-base machine that the Cardinals want from the leadoff spot. So I do think you're starting to see some of the things that you mentioned like build um, in, a, in a good direction for the team and through production, maybe they finally get clarity. Maybe that's what does it because it hasn't come about any other way. Yeah, it's been interesting. And I'm sure, you know, day-to-day for Ollie, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's a puzzle. Uh, it, it, yeah, 100%. The other day I called the, uh, I called the roster a Rubik's Cube, and he's just trying to find the colors that uh, they put together to make it look right. Yeah, going into Sunday's game, I, I reached out to our, you know, our friend Sarah Langs and asked her about the defensive ratings for the Cardinals outfield. 29th out of 30 teams in outs above average going into Sunday's game and tie for 26 in defensive runs saved. Yeah. So that that part of the team has to get better. 60 seconds. Uh, I still think the Cardinals are going to win this division. What about you? Yeah, I, I think the the division had a chance to, to put them away. I mean, they did. The Cardinals lost, what did they win, 2-13. and 13. They lost eight consecutive, and in that same stretch, uh, the Pirates lost 10 of their first 11 this month, right? And the Brewers, who have the pitching to maybe pull away early, didn't. They just didn't. The division had their chance, and uh, I, don't, I don't think they did enough. Um, you know, the Cardinals don't look exactly great with their record below 500 right now, um, and the head-to-head, I think, is very fascinating. The fewer head-to-head games against the Brewers – that, that, that'll be very interesting to watch because uh, seven of their final 13 games are against the Brewers, but those are the next games against the Brewers. So they're going to have to make ground up by beating other teams and, uh, and putting together some genuine winning streaks because the head-to-head games aren't going to be there. Uh, I think they can do it. Um, I still think that they have the, the chance to add pitching. We talk about the, the depth that they have in the outfield. They'll add a starter. That'll change the look of them. The Brewers' choices in July will, will reshape the division. Um, the Cubs will be pesky, I think, all along. Um, but, the, but the Cardinals still have the roster and still have the, what, the regression to the mean on their side when it comes to, uh, to, to, to being atop this division. You talked. You referenced the Brewers' choices in July. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure you're referencing what we saw last year, where they were in first place and they traded one of the best closers in baseball, Josh Hader, to San Diego. And the perception of folks with other teams is they will entertain the idea of trading Corbin Burns yeah. and Brandon Woodruff and Willie Adamas before the deadline, which would completely shake up the Central. All right, Derek. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. Good to hear from you. Thank you very much. 
Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. My pal, Mr. Jakey writes in, Buster, I don't understand what's going on with the A's. The article I read says they just reached an agreement with the Tropicana Group for their stadium in Vegas, but it says that they are going to be tenants and that the casino group has the rights to develop the site. This seems to go against the whole ballpark village development dreams. Is it safe to say they are now just moving the team to Las Vegas in order to cash out and sell it as a more valuable franchise that is so disingenuous well let me uh first off i want to compliment you because as we're taping this you're on zoom and i can see you multitasking you're being a dog owner and you're reading the tweets (laughs) you're like you know push dolly from one side (laughs) to the other side now you're patting her you're trying to settle her down so taylor nice work by you thank you thank you what's what do you think about so you know as i was thinking about this does this not feel like a, a game of three-card Monty? Well, you know, then this would be appropriate with the A's in Las Vegas, right? <laughs> yes. Where it's like, they're trying to distract you and what's over here. And I'm just like, I'm just waiting for a shovel to be put in the ground. You know, we're, we're coming down now. like this, this proposals to lost to the Nevada legislature supposedly uh, is going to take place within two weeks. And I don't know. Does anyone I, I know anything? Find out it's some, what were you going to say? Does anyone know anything? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, the owner, John Fisher, knows what he wants to do in the end. He's the one who knows whether this whole thing is a fraud and this is all negotiation or is he actually sincere about it? You know, he's the only one who really knows here. (laughs) Okay, so confirm no one else other than John Fisher knows what's going to happen. In the end, because he can always pull the plug on it, right? Yeah. John Fisher, only John Fisher, you know, knew when he was going to spend money, not spend money. So... And he, does he care about the history of the franchise in Oakland? Does he not care? We'll find out. Definitely doesn't care. I think that's been established. Um, yes, uh, true. That's true. <laughs> Let's go to Andrew DeSalvo. He writes in, which is more likely to happen this season? The Orioles stay in the top five for winning percentage or the O's actually open their financial books as was promised months ago by ownership? Hmm. Andrew, you know the answer to that. They will <laughs> never open their books. You know, I told the story. Actually, when I covered the Orioles, uh, Peter Angelos privately, I mean, you know, we'd have conversations. He'd say, you know, I'm, I'm going to open up and show we don't make as much money as people think we do. And then he actually, I think, was seriously thinking about it. But then other owners are like, don't do that. You're going to put us in a bad situation. And so, uh, you know, John Angelus, when he said that, I was like, he, he's not going to do that. That the hammer would come down from Major League Baseball because they don't want to provide insight into baseball finances. And you know what? If I'm the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals or the Chicago Cubs or the Red Sox, that's probably how I would feel. Yeah, does that make sense? Like, it makes sense that other owners would say, don't do us. You're going to make us look bad. You're going to set a standard that we would have to meet, which is why it was a joke that he said in the first place that he was going to do that. I can't believe John Angelos promised John Angelos would open up the books like that. How dare he? I know. It was crazy, (laughs) which is why we, you know, we fixated on it when it happened. Oh, gosh. Uh, Jessica at J-S-N-Y-P-E. Sorry, Jessica. She writes in, as I sit at the White Sox game, I'm struck how strange it is that the PA announcers only announce batters and pitchers, not outs, hits, runs, etc. This Has this always been the case and why? I feel like it might be a little bit much if they were doing anything other than uh, batters and pitchers. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And you've got, you know, the scoreboards, the massive scoreboards that mm-hmm. gives you that information. And, and uh, besides... 
they have to, uh, you know, create space for the music that they play. You know, all the yeah. walk-up music. Yeah. I, I mean, the guy would lose his mind, right? <laughs> who who was running the board yeah. uh, if he had to actually do that? That's and that's basically he's just running play-by-play at that point. I don't know if anyone wants that mistake. Exactly. No, hundred percent. Stewie nineteen sixty nine at the Stoke nineteen sixty nine writes and at the Rogers Center to take in Jays versus Yanks as a card carrying member of Red Sox Nation. I'm only here to roast the Yankees duty calls. Well, it didn't go too well for Stewie, <laughs> but fun game to check out. Yeah, Stewie, maybe the the Jays could use you as a reliever, and you won't hang a slider to Aaron Judge. <laughs> Uh, Sean Sullivan at for you. Kevin writes in spending the night in the delivery room waiting for our first kid. Since I know we won't be sleeping for the next several months. Who's an AL or NL West player pitcher to keep my eye on as a breakout star during these late night games. Friend of the podcast. Corbin Carroll is so much fun to watch. He's fast. He hits for power. He's dynamic. He's put the diamondbacks in a position where uh, they might make the playoffs. And you know, the broadcasts are done by our old friend, Steve Berthiume. You know, who I got to work up on baseball tonight with so long, and he's a excellent broadcaster. So I would highly recommend Corbin Carroll uh, and the conduit being Steve Berthium. Diamondbacks, a lot of fun to watch right, right yep, now. Yep, they are. Last one for today, Blue Domer Dave writes in, Hey, Buster, you described Lars Newtbar as being practically speechless when he was connecting with his mom. Who's a ball player or athlete who would leave you speechless if he showed up in the studio wanting to talk to you? Yeah, there's no, and that's already been established. Sandy Koufax, you know, I've told the story, became a baseball fan when I read a book about Sandy Koufax uh, at eight years old. And it was about five years ago, I was at City Field and Sandy Koufax walked into the room and I just shrunk. Like, (laughs) you know, I I was to Sandy Koufax the way that Sarah would be if Taylor Swift suddenly dropped in on this podcast right now. Like Sarah would just be uttering sounds. She wouldn't actually be able to put together a sentence. True, Sarah? Oh, I would faint. I think I would just pass out. I don't even think I can't be in the same room as her ever. There's just no way. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. We will be back on Friday. And that's it for today. My thanks to Derek Gould, to June Lee, Sarah and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color, something we need to fight against every single day. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one and done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.